Welcome to FarmWalks Podcast, a personal glimpse into farming in the UK. My name's Ben Raskin, Head of Horticulture at the Soil Association, and in my more than two decades working in farming, I've visited hundreds of farms around the UK and witnessed firsthand the skill, experience and passion. And I thought, well, why should I be the only lucky one? So I wanted to share their stories with you. In this second podcast of our Farm Walk series, we're meeting up with David Eagle, who is right at the forefront of innovation, growing and processing sea buckthorn. So we're here near Colchester in a village with a name I can't pronounce. Curvilus Hogan. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm with David Eagle. We're actually in his pack house shed, quarter cabin, quarter cabin looking at a fantastic array of sea buckthorn products. And I can see cans and bottles, packets, uh, half a library, and a few other things. So, I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. As, it is uh, a good place to start, because at the end of the day, if you have a crop, you need to market. And there are, worldwide, there are lots and lots and lots of people producing products from sea buckthorn. The fact it hasn't come to the UK probably relates to the fact that it does grow wild here, but only very little. And uh, we are tending to be into monoculture and not into niche diverse crops. Um, sea buckthorn came to me really on the basis of this farm being a coastal farm, has a seawall around the outside of it. Climate change is starting to impact on seawalls uh, from a surge tide perspective and Actually, in 1953, all our seawalls were knocked down, so we know what a flood looks like. And the future doesn't look rosy for people who've got uh, coastal farms. The Environment Agency budgets have been gradually um, whittling away since, effectively, since 2000. Really, since the millennium, we've sort of seen these extreme inland events, flood events, and therefore their priorities are changing. So. From my perspective, it is possible that in the next generation, and let's face farming is a long-term project, um, that half our farm could go to sea. So with potentially half the land, we've got to find a high-value crop potential with potential for on-farm processing, which can yeah. replace the commodity crops that we're doing at the moment. Which are? Barley, wheat. Um, tears, we now grow ackee flour, um, but it, it tends to be cereal crops. Yeah. Um, and of course, as we you know, now move forward into a different era, looking at you know, everybody looking at soil health and cover crops and things, diversification is coming with that. But um, with 600 acres, we are a relatively small farm, and a, particularly another issue of being a coastal farm is you can't really partnerships with other people become more difficult. You've only got them on one side. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what's the history of the farm? Is it, have it been in the family for a long time? What were you cropping before? Um, 1880, great-great-grandfather rented the land. It was bought in the 1920s. Father came back from the war, uh, actually not particularly wanting to be a farmer, wanted to go into um, aeroplanes. But um, he was there until the 1980s, and then I took over. Um, having come back from abroad, so. And you mentioned it was a dairy farm. It was a dairy. When I came back, there was a 150 cow dairy herd, um, and which have been here ever since 
the farm have been around. Traditionally, the farm has been into sheep, but sheep actually went in the 1920s. The flock was dispersed in the 1920s, and actually we're now just starting to get back into sheep again. So everything's right. round and yeah, round. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the dairy, um, we were um, with Lord Rayleigh's Dairies, which was part of Strutton Parker Farms, a big uh, Essex farming group, um, and gradually. After the milk marketing board went, prices went up when quotas came in, then prices plunged. Mm. We went into pedigree dairying. That didn't really work. And, um, you know, the time came in 2001 where really we had to start looking forward to going to changes. Mm. So now the arable side is all contracted out. The dairy buildings are full of a, um, an aggregate and building supply firm. And the farm is um, effectively 50% HLS yeah. uh, and 50% farmed. So David, is, let's have a chat about the, the, the buckthorn itself. Um, I mean, I can see maybe 50 products here for horses and drinks and, and various other things. What, what is it about sea buckthorn that makes it so attractive? Um, I was originally introduced to it by Dr. John French, who was then at Riffle College, um, and he then moved on to University of East Anglia and set up um, a project which was EU-funded, and we had a conversation about alternative crops. We went through a huge list, and effectively sea buckthorn came out on top because it, from a product perspective, it is used in food and drink, it's used in cosmetics, it's used in pharmaceuticals, it's used in veterinary products. So on the basis of a wide perspective of product, there's a lot of market out there to shoot at. Yeah. And is this vitamin content is the main it's, thing? It's or? Uh, omega 3, 6, 7 and 9. It's very high in vitamins. Um, the, the, there's the berry and within the berry there's a seed. Clearly the seed is used for a seed oil. Within the berry there's oil as well. So the two oils together are used in natural cosmetics, in uh, natural supplement capsules, very high in a whole mix of polyphenols, um, which are a group of, of nutrients that I think you know, aren't high on the list of understanding, um, but particularly in Germany, they're doing a huge amount of work on them, looking at the potential that they give um, both for human and for animal nutrient. Um, the animal side of it is is quite interesting because uh, for things like uh, horses, for instance, um, it has been known to be very good for ameliorating gastric ulcers for years, and that's been come really through from Indian medicine, Tibetan medicine, Chinese medicine, which goes back a couple of thousand years. Mm -hmm. uh, we're feeding sea buckthorn to into the racing industry, and effectively. A huge number of horses, because they're um, used for active sports, are under quite a lot of stress. Stress creates ulcers. Ulcers clearly affects performance. And although there are lots of drugs out there, A, the drugs are expensive, but the other thing is, particularly in the racing industry, um, they aren't licensed for use during the mm -hmm. racing season. Whereas Seabuckthorn is a natural product yeah. where you can use right the way through the season. So. Um, so is, it, is this your own product? That that's you're... a product we import from Germany. Okay. Um, this year we've re, um, 
rehashed it to be more specific towards ulcers so that there's a, a product which will effectively get on top of an ulcer problem um, which is a slightly more expensive product and then falls back onto the um, standard puree preventative um, and and that is something really we're looking at a price of about one pound ten p a day dose um, but because CBAC, it's got 190 different nutrients in it, all of which do something different. And one of the issues I have in my brain is, you know, you've got lots of books, lots of huge numbers of research papers, all of which concentrate on different nutrients, all of which concentrate on different benefits. And they tend to specifically go after one particular benefit. As happens with lots of natural products, it's actually not that one nutrient doing what it does specifically. It's the synergy of all those nutrients working together. Yeah. Uh, liver cirrhosis is one that has been uh, an issue in India. They've been looking at Cebuthon as a cure for that. Um, skin, it's been used for first degree burns for a very long time. And there are products out there on anti-aging and that type of thing. The fact it's got omega-7 in it... Um, specifically relates to skin and um, that is something which is then feeding into the whole natural cosmetic market um, which spins out into shampoos and soaps and uh, skin creams and things Um, so that's the the other interesting veterinary side of it is that it uh, it reduces down dare I say it, methane emissions from bovines and part of the the side effect from that is it's actually improving the whole nitrogen cycle within the gut of, of a, a bovine animal, um, which then kicks back to improving growth rates. Because it's also an antimicrobial, uh, things like chicks, calves, um, piglets, um, if you put a small amount of seabuckthorn um, leaf, dried leaf, into their diets, yeah, okay. then the antimicrobial issue gives you a better, more, uh, reduced down mortality rate. And in terms of the, the harvesting, is there a... There isn't one. Well, but in terms of if you're picking the leaf, uh, but not the berry, you know, for, for picking leaf, you might treat a, a plant differently to if you were picking the, the berries. So do you... Currently working with German partners on looking at leaf, and the conclusion is that, like with, with a standard tea with camellia, you're effectively looking in July just to take the the very the young leaves on the tips. So we're sort of thinking that, that actually you would probably have, you've managed the plant differently into a different shape and effectively you probably use a hedge cutter. Yeah. Um, and because the the end, the wood on the end of the branches is very supple. Yeah. Um, Buckthorn fruits on two-year-old wood, is that right? Yes, yeah. So in fact, you could be doing some summer pruning that could be beneficial to berry. If you're taking the tips of the leaves, that might be beneficial for berry production anyway. So. Yes, the, there are two forms of um, har- harvesting the berries. Uh, there's conventional thorny picking, right. um, which is one that, if you go into Siberia where the, these plants, our plants come from, um, the pickers are the highest paid people in the area. They are incredibly professional at what they do, and they can pick so it said 100 kilos a day i'll take the word for it and but at 100 kilos a day that's beating most machines right um, whereas the german varieties 
and you can't necessarily use the Siberian varieties for this method, you cut the branches, you freeze them, and then once the branch is frozen, then you can knock the berries off. And that's a very fast, cheap, efficient way of, of harvesting. And consequently, there's a huge Kranemann harvester in Germany, which is a very expensive tool, which is all basically based on cutting branches into a big trailer, straight down to a freezing plant. Um, and that's why we're surrounded by freezers in this room, is and it? And that's the thought on freezers. <laughs> but uh, the uh, Lisvenko Institute, who supply my plants, they have given me a list of half a dozen varieties that they want me to try for branch cutting. Yeah. But because uh, these plants aren't quite as oddly, they're not quite as hardy, I don't think as hardy as the German plants, uh, and they don't grow so strongly, therefore cutting might be an issue. Okay. Um, so you need something that's vigorous enough that it's going to grow back really strongly from exactly. having the whole branch exactly. cut off. Exactly. And, and, and these, you know, the problems with Siberian plants is they come from uh, a continental climate, really sort of summer temperatures of plus 40, down to sort of minus 30, minus 40. On the coast here, if we get Mm, frost sort of all. 30 frosts a year we've done well yeah. you know, if it's like 10 frosts a year then that's more normal uh, and on top of that we're growing them in clay whereas in their native environment they're in this sort of deep Siberian black soil which is you know to die for I mean it's, if you can't grow anything in that you can't grow anything in anything but um, and it, so in terms of growing them in the UK I mean w w one of your motivations for growing them is you've got a an exposed, possibly quite tricky site that's going to be prone to coastal storms. Yep. Um, so you need something that's that's really tough that can cope with hard conditions. It sounds as though, and I'm guessing the ones uh, from Siberia and Europe are, are higher productive, bigger berries, presumably. Um, so, so do we need to actually breed some of those characteristics combined with our native ones that have got those hardier growing characteristics? What's the what's the future in terms of varieties do you see here? I mean, Lissavenko, who supply the plants, they've got um, about 50 varieties under test at the moment. They've got 23 uh, registered. And if you go to any state in the Russian Federation, they've all got their own varieties. The Germans then have got seven varieties, commercial varieties in Germany. You go into Scandinavia, they've got their own there was some really interesting work going on in Romania um, and and sort of the Eastern Bloc. Uh, one of the issues about sea buckthorn is you say sea buckthorn, but actually it's six species, 13 subspecies. That includes anything from a dwarf Arctic plant to a sort of uh, a 30, well, 10, 10 metre plant in the Himalayas. You know, they are all completely different, producing a different type of berry. Uh, Pakistan through the Western Himalayas, which is a sort of dry desert area, there's anything up to the tiny little berries, but they've got 30% oil in them, right. which is what you know what effectively puts the value into the crop. But um, I'm told by people in that part of the world that if you go into any wild area of sea buckthorn, you won't find two plants the same. Yeah. You know, they are a mystery all of their own. So although they are a 
particular subspecies, this to actually commercialise them would be really difficult. So, and is there is there any possibility of growing our our native forms commercially? Because yeah. if you're freezing them and knocking the berries off, for instance, then it might not matter if the berries are smaller. Cornish Seabury is a company that's set up just down in Cornwall last year. He's growing German plants. German plants are probably the way forward in a conventional way, but they are thorny, whereas the Siberian plants aren't. No. Um, and they do have different uses, different varieties for different uses. So there's a taste issue there. And one of the whole concepts about sea buckthorn, which goes with lots of things, and you, you know, UK has a sweet taste, a sweet, to- you know, sweet tooth, and effectively sea buckthorn is not, sharp. Not sweet. <laughs> so although you know, we are going into an era of health and well-being and all that stuff, um, to actually get a drink blend together that works, you're selling it into a niche market to start with um, yeah. because those people that recognise it for its health benefits will go for it. Those people that don't understand it might struggle. Yeah. Um, but it does. It, there are a number of um, fruits that it mixes really well with and makes a really nice breakfast juice, or you know, as a as a mixed juice, it, you know, it does go really well. But as a crop that is takes six years to establish, is quite arduous in harvesting. Um, it's not going to be a cheap berry at the end of the day. We're in a porter cabin. We've got one, two, three, four, five freezers and a fridge. Um, can we have a peek inside one of them? So David's opening so, this up now, and inside we've got a a mass of short branches with clumps of that, very vibrant yeah. orange berries on them. And the the leaf looks a little bit like rosemary when it's dried, doesn't it? Absolutely, or, or it's like a sort of a willow leaf. Or, to a, or yeah, or a very thin willow leaf. Yeah. Um, and the difference nutritionally, the difference between the, the leaves actually have uh, a, quite a dense complex of vitamin B, whereas the uh, fruits are vitamin A, C, D, and E. And um, the berries, as you can see, they too tend to come in absolute clumps. Yeah, and they're very tight on the stem. And they're stem. very tight, and that's one of the problems about harvesting. If you try and hand harvest them, um, is actually you can pick them off the outside, but to try and get that without damaging any of the berries yeah. is, is a bit of a problem. And having done that, as soon as you've broken a berry and the juice goes onto the whole mix, um, you know, you've then got issues with quality and, and yeah. hygiene and that sort of thing. Um, and it, each twig, David's holding a, so a, a twig that's uh, when you, that, six, six or eight inches long, and on each one of those there's 100, 150 berries? Yeah, I think so. Um, or more even maybe. The German plants I've got uh, on they were planted in 2009 and they are producing now up to 12 and a half kilos uh, a bush. Um, the Siberian bushes declare that they will produce up to 20 kilos. Um, this the variety we're looking at in this freezer is Habeco, which I personally think is probably from a flavor perspective and let's face it taste is, is a subjective issue. Habego I really rate um, as a, a fruit and drink variety. Um, and that's it, because it's full of flavour? or It's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a nicer, it's full of flavour, it's not as, it's more of a balanced sort of flavour. So, um, strangely enough, although 
Seabot von Saar, it has got a sugary content. The Siberian varieties, a lot of them are actually sold as dessert varieties. Mm-hmm. And some of them have actually got as much sugar as a strawberry. But because also they've got a lot of acids in there, all those omega acids, yeah. acids are effectively balancing out that sugar. They're a much more complex flavour yeah. than a... Yeah. So, um, these are, so can, that's quite a big berry. Yeah, I mean, it's the size of a currant, I guess, a slightly egg-shaped yeah. currant. And, and they'll grow up to about a gram, in, a big berry is about a gram in weight. Mm-hmm. Um, the smaller varieties are down to sort of half a gram or even smaller, and that once they get down to that size, that's really starting to be, become a trial for harvesting. A lot of skin as well. Yeah. For, and you just knocked, I, you may have heard uh, some banging a second ago, David was just knocking the branch against the side of the freezer and effectively all the berries just popped off. Yeah, and and it is a, a very, very simple way of, of harvesting. And on top of that, it doesn't damage the berry. So um, if you try and pull the berries off individually, uh, it's it's a it's an issue. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try one. See see Go my on. face. It's got a seed in it. Now that's interesting. Because of all the talk about sourness, I was expecting a lemon face moment, yeah. but actually, it's not that sour to me. Anyway. I think it's not as sour as a lemon. That's a really if 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 an orange has got some sourness, it's yeah, it's like it, an un, it's, it's a slightly like sour orange, yeah, yeah. but um, a really lovely flavour. But the um, uh, the Germans and the Scandinavians, it's called the Nordic lemon, um, and I think that's possibly being a little bit disingenuous to it from yeah. that perspective. Um, that was nice. I enjoyed that. Good success. <laughs> but it is uh, it is almost a flavour unique to itself. And it's got, mm. you know, you could say it's got a bit of apricot in there, a bit of mango in there, a bit of... Uh, I've got a bit of mango, certainly, yeah. The, the, Siberian, the Siberians call it the, the Siberian pineapple. That's it for this episode. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, and our next farm walk. <laughs>